All right, we're continuing on in 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, Thanksgiving is upon us. It's coming. It's just a few days from now, and we all have that time in Thanksgiving when we're gathered around the table to share what we're thankful for. We talk about many things like friends and family and having a warm home and food and our freedoms and all those things. But frankly, there are two things I've never heard anyone say that they're thankful for. And those are actually the two things that we're going to cover today. Those two things are work and suffering. Work and suffering. Now, work and suffering, many of us might see work and suffering as one and the same. However, both of these are things that we've been called to partake in. Both of these are areas where we can live out our living hope that we've been talking about this whole time, that we can live out our living hope to a world in desperate need of a Savior. And both of these things are things that Jesus understands intimately. Not only because his omniscience as God, but also because he experienced them bodily, personally. You know, the fact is, we spend 90,000 hours of our lives on the job. That's right. The average American spends one-third of their entire life at work. And as we're reminded right here, we're in the second chapter of 1 Peter, we're in the context of the word urging us to keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers. Live out your testimony. Live in such a way that you do not bring reproach on yourself. More importantly, you don't bring reproach on Christ. But live in such a way in that your conduct itself is a testimony to the gospel. And 90,000 hours of our lives are going to be spent around people that we're working with. We see that our lives are a platform. They're a stage upon which we proclaim the gospel with everything we say and do to an unbelieving world. And last week we saw how our Christian testimony relates to how we relate to governing authorities, governing institutions. But this week we'll see how it relates to authorities in the workplace. So how can we and how should we live out our living hope at work and with how we work? And also, how do we live out our living hope when we suffer? Let's start here in verse 18, where it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. What exactly is a servant or a slave in some of your translations at the time that Peter is writing this? Well, simply put, slavery touched every single aspect of Roman society. Roman slavery was a little different than the slavery we know in American history. We always like to bring in our American context of the dark history of slavery when we approach words like these, but there's a couple differences. First of all, slavery was not racial in Rome. There were servants or slaves from every ethnicity, including many ethnic Romans. And it also wasn't regional. It wasn't just in one part of the Roman Empire. It was widespread. It was in every province, in every city, in every industry. In fact, it's estimated that in the first century, that at any given time, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 250,000 would be exchanged annually. In fact, it's also estimated that at this time, 40% of the population of the Roman Empire were servants or slaves. 40%. So a major part of the economy. 
Some of these were bond servants because they had a debt they couldn't repay. Some were what we would consider white-collar professionals. These were highly educated people, accountants, physicians. They were managers of an estate, teachers. Some of them were what were called in the Latin service publicus or public servants. They were government jobs. I was a service publicus for about six years for the state of Wyoming. Some of them were prisoners of war from Rome's imperial conquests, and these were likely subjected to manual back-breaking labor. Now, some had the ability to own property, to make their own living, to buy their own freedom, and some had few, if any, civil rights whatsoever. So this covers the full spectrum of society. Now, the treatment of these servants that this is talking about would range from great, almost treated like family members, to not so bad, all the way to brutal and horrific. Look, I mean, there was no OSHA, there were no workers' rights, there were no unions or anything like that. But understand, Peter is not writing an op-ed on slavery. He's not writing an opinion piece on Roman economics whatsoever. We see elsewhere in the word that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you have the opportunity to avail yourself your freedom, to go ahead and do so. We also see that masters are, are to treat those who they work, uh, who work for them with dignity and honor. But Peter isn't writing about that. He's writing to believers. What are we to do in the time that has been given to us as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as a people of God's own possession who have this living hope, but find ourselves living in this world that isn't our true home. So we come to this verse. And first, an observation, the word that is translated as servants or slaves in some of your translations is the Greek word oiketai. It comes from the root word house. This isn't the normal word used for slave. This is a term for a servant who worked in someone's house or estate. Again, this term could encompass many different job duties. You know, these servants could be everything from workers in fields and agriculture to personal security, Again, accountants, physicians, things like that. All the jobs that were required on a very large estate. In fact, I say some of those jobs, those are jobs that some of us have right now or jobs that some of us have had in the past. So we can immediately understand. We take the context of the first century and here we are in Madison in the 21st century and immediately understand how the word of God is applicable here to every area of our lives today. Because... You know, we may not call the people we work for our masters, right? We call them bosses. They may not call us servants. They call us employees, although sometimes we joke tongue-in-cheek that it seems more like the former rather than the latter, right? And we have a diverse workforce with an economically mobile populace with any number of industries that we can work in, but here's what's really at stake. In Christ, as we read earlier in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race. You are a holy nation. You are a people of his own possession. And you're destined for an immeasurable inheritance. And you are destined to reign with Christ. So, as we've been discussing, you are as privileged as one can possibly be on this side of eternity. You are royal. But... In this world, you're not always treated like royalty, right? 
in this world, God has allowed and even ordained human authorities. And we don't always like them. We don't always agree with them. They don't always treat us well. But in this short life, you are in this place, you are in this situation, and you have a powerful purpose. That powerful purpose, as we discussed two weeks ago, is to proclaim your Savior in your, and your King in this time and place. And here we have it in verse 18. We see a command right off the bat to be subject to your masters. Or as we would understand it, submit to those you work for. Now this whole concept, it just cuts so against the grain of our flesh. Now those passions of the flesh that we talked about in verse 11 last week, one of those that's particularly strong in us, especially in this country, is self-rule, right? It's rebellion. You can't tell me to be subject to anyone, all right? You do not have that right. I'm an American. I'm sovereign over myself. So last week when we were talking about human institutions and civil authorities, that was challenging for me. That was challenging for a lot of us. And this is challenging as well because the desire for self-rule exists in our flesh from the earliest stages of life and all throughout. We desire to do what we want and get what we want when we want it and how we want it. And in our fallen state, we are naturally bent against any authority in our lives. At the family level, at the church level, at the civil level, at the work level, all of that, we're naturally bent on it. From early on with our parents, to our civil authorities, to our employers, even to God before our salvation, we were hostile in mind toward God. But when Christ saves us, he, he transforms everything about us. He changes what we're bent toward. Now, we wanted to rebel. We wanted things our own way. We wanted to rule in every area of life, even to our own detriment. But Christ changes our want to. One of the surest marks of a genuine believer is that we want to honor Christ in every capacity. And here Peter is crystal clear. We honor Christ when we honor earthly authorities in our life. And in this passage, in this case, it's those we work for. But here we, we do so not just by completing the tasks that we're told to complete, not just showing up on time. No, so much more so than all of that, but with an attitude of the heart. It says here, with all respect. Look, I've been here before. But it's not honoring to Christ to just complete the job, but inwardly despise those who we work for. It's not honoring to Christ to be efficient at the job that we do, but harbor bitterness and a negative attitude while we do it. I'm sure we've all been there. We are told here to do it with all respect, because by respecting those in authority, we are first and foremost showing respect to God himself. By obeying those authorities in our life, we are, in fact, first and foremost, obeying the Word of God. So, simply put, a, a principle that all of us can just get on the level with right now, Christians should be model employees. Our coworkers, our subordinates, our employers, they should all see Christ in us in how we work. 
in how we respond to criticism, in how we even respond when we're being unfairly accused, and even how we respond to commendation as well. How often in the work culture in this country, whether you work for the state or for a union or any job with minimal oversight or responsibilities, do we just see where the bar is set and where the expectations are and we set our aim to jump just over that bar? We know where it is. I mean, we know at a certain point that our laziness will get us in trouble, so we do the minimum to avoid reprimand, right? How often do we simply see work, even hard work, merely as a matter of achievement? You know, here's what I need to do to get to the next bar in my, uh, my profession. If I employ, if I perform the job well, I will be rewarded with a raise, with a promotion, with the commendation and praise of others. How often do we merely see our work as a means to an end? Just a means of survival, to put food on the table. Now that is true. God provides us with work as a way to feed and clothe ourselves and our families. But what if it could be so much more? What if our labor was not just to provide ourselves a certain standard of living? The fact of the matter is, just like everything we've covered here, work is a means to an end. It is. But remember, what is that end? What is our chief end? What is our purpose? as a royal priesthood. Verse 9, as we covered, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Work should be a means by which we achieve that ultimate end, by proclaiming Him. Now, from what we've gone through so far, how many of you struggle with any of this? How many of you have struggled with this? I'll be the first to raise my hand. You know, I'll encourage you. I, I want you to try something. Whether it's on the job or in any situation that there is an authority in your life or anything like that, any authority that you may resent or a job that you have a hard time fulfilling or anything that you have a hard time joyfully submitting to, remind yourself of this. I I'm submitting to my Savior. All right? Remind yourself, I am doing this because I love Jesus. I can do this because I love Jesus. Because if you think that this is just tough in general, which it is, Peter ups the ante even more with this command where he says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, Peter told us that we were to honor the emperor in the previous passage. And who was that emperor at the time when Peter wrote this? It was Nero. Most extreme example you can think of, of honoring the most wicked, crazy person, head of state that maybe ever existed. And in that same vein, the amount of goodness of our employer or authority, their goodness does not determine the level of respect or submission that is owed to them. We're to submit to them with all respect, of course, when they're good and gentle, but also even when they're being unfair. Now, this word for unjust, it means bent. It comes from the root word for bent. It means off the mark, unreasonable, even harsh. Because as verse 19 says, 
For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, we talked about some of those gracious things of our life that we're born again to a living hope. But here we see it's a gracious thing when what? When we suffer unjustly? That does not seem like a nice thing at all. But here we see it's gracious. What this is saying is, for this is the grace of God at work in your life in a measurable, demonstrable way. When you're consciously aware of his presence in your life and for his sake, you are able to withstand unjust treatment. When someone treats you unfairly, God is glorified when you make that conscious decision to acknowledge him and you endure it and you forgive. God is glorified when you do not repay evil for evil. It is grace at work in your life when you embody Christ to someone when they're mistreating you. And it's grace at work in your life when you're mindful of God, of his power, of his sovereignty, of his control of your life, even when you endure suffering. As verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So on the contrary, I mean, what this is saying is what credit is it at all if you're punished, but you're punished for something you deserve punishment for? That's just called getting what you had coming for your sin. If you steal, lie, or cheat at the workplace or anywhere else, you should expect reprimand. But if you endure suffering for doing good, This is God's grace at work in your life. This is evidence that his grace has transformed you. If you find yourself the recipient of wrongful blame or for suffering for living out your Christian convictions or being ostracized from those in the workplace because you live out your Christian testimony, that is a gracious thing. God is pleased. That's an act of worship to your Savior. Understand when it says be subject to your masters, that's not a an absolute command. When it says be subject to them even when they're unjust, that doesn't mean when you're being when they ask you to do unjust things on on their behalf that you do it. No, because here it says if you do good and suffer for it and endure it. And there are times when we are placed in that situation. In fact, I've known a number of people who worked in a place where their superiors asked them to lie or to fudge numbers or data or to distort the truth in the workplace. And they simply said, I will not do that. I cannot do that. Christ compels me to not do that. They stood up because they were doing good and they suffered for it. Some of them were terminated from their jobs or promotions were withheld from them, or some of them were ostracized from their co-workers. You know, they're, simply put, their careers were seemingly from the outset hindered from living out their living faith. But here's the thing. They understood that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. These people knew that God was sovereign to richly bless them with everything they needed, and all that was required of them was to be patient to faithfully endure suffering and know that God is in control. You know, I haven't experienced anything quite like that. But before I went into ministry, I worked a state government job, as I said earlier. Now, I was never asked to lie or to cheat or fudge any data or anything like that. 
But one thing I did notice in the office culture of where I worked is that people love to gossip. It was their pastime. You know, when we got done talking about the football game, the next thing that they would go to is gossip. Gossip about fellow co-workers, gossip about the boss. They'd even complain about their spouses. All the time, it was just gossip, gossip, gossip. And I made a firm stance to never enter- entertain any of that gossip. I was not going to engage in it. I was not going to be a sounding board for it. So when they would complain about our boss, I made it a point to speak about him respectfully. When they'd gossip about another coworker, I made it a point to speak well of that coworker and say, hey, it's wrong to do that. It's wrong to talk about them behind their back like that. And when they'd complain about their wife, I'd make it a point to talk about how much I cherish my wife. That kind of puts an end to the conversation real quick when they realize, okay, he's not playing along with this. Now, some people immediately saw a difference there. Some people respected me for how I handled those situations. They're like, okay, yeah, that actually is a more positive environment that he's bringing to the table here. But others, on the other hand, just decided that they really didn't want much to do with me after that in a social sense because I was the party pooper to their gossip fest. You know, I, I never faced any real suffering at all, but I guess what I did lose was a superficial camaraderie with some of these coworkers that I otherwise would have enjoyed if I would have just gone along and engaged in that kind of behavior. I lost that camaraderie with these negative, gossipy people, and as far as I'm concerned, problem solved. But I did sacrifice being in the in crowd, getting invited to lunch with some people, but I was able to make a difference and demonstrate a difference in how I acted and how I treated others because of what Christ has done in my life. Now, in a much more serious way, there are people in this church who have lost their jobs for firmly standing on truth. There are people who have been forced to find other means of employment because they refuse to go against their convictions. You know, folks, that sacrifice may seem really steep. It may seem insurmountable to go against the ones who own a company that we work for, but the one who owns everything is pleased. It's a gracious thing to him. Moreover, we're demonstrating the very example of Christ himself, and that's where we come to in verse 21, where it says, For to this you have been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, Peter, as an eyewitness of Christ, as a disciple, you know, he takes us to the ultimate example of humility, the one that unfolded before his very eyes for three and a half years all throughout Galilee and Judea, and that is the example of Jesus Christ who suffered unjustly yet endured suffering. And here Peter's saying, you've been called to this purpose, to suffer. You've been called to this What is the this? It's to suffer unjustly. Wow, what a privilege. Sign me up. Get me in line. I've been called to suffer. But what he says here is you can do this because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So that you might follow in his steps. We sing more, more about Jesus. You know, we want to be more like him. Isn't that what we claim we want to do? To follow in the steps of Christ? All of us. If we took a survey walking in, all who claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if I said, do you want to follow in the steps of Christ? Do you want to be more like Jesus? Every single one of us would enthusiastically say, yes, that's part of the reason why I'm here today. I want to learn more about Jesus. I want to follow in his steps. We say it. We say we want to be more like Jesus. And it's easy to say when we think about Jesus' love, when we think about his kindness, when we think about the fellowship he had with his disciples and the many wonderful things he taught, I really want to be like that. I want to follow in those steps. But understand, the steps that Jesus walked, they're the furthest thing from easy. His steps led all the way to rejection, to scourgings, beatings, mockings, a crown of thorns, a jeering crowd, and three nails in his flesh at Calvary. Those are the steps he walked. Jesus tells us to deny ourselves daily and take up a cross. Following in Jesus' steps means daily self-denial. It means suffering. Let's ask ourselves, How often do we really mean that when we say we want to follow in Jesus' steps? Do we really mean it when following in his steps means suffering for his sake? Because Peter walks us through some of the things here that are some of the most difficult things a human can resolve to do. They go every bit against our fleshly nature. They go every bit against the grain of what may even seem reasonable to us. But Jesus lives in you. Let him live through you. You know, our flesh is bent to settle scores. But following in Jesus' steps, it says here, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You know, we want to settle the score. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Now, how many of you have had those moments where someone says something insulting to you, and then hours later, you're taking a shower, and you have an epiphany. Like, oh, if I would have only said that, that would have just roasted them and shut them up, right? Maybe some of you are quicker on your feet than me. Usually I have the shower epiphanies. <laughs> Jesus was reviled. He did not revile in return. Our flesh is also bent on getting our own vengeance, but following in Jesus' steps, when he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus handed over his fate solely to God the Father because he knew that God would vindicate him. Now really, the most extreme suffering that we could possibly face on this earth, extreme suffering that we don't imagine in this country, but we know may exist elsewhere in the world, the most extreme suffering that we could possibly face is an insignificant and passing amount compared to the suffering that we've been spared from. That's right. 
think of that, that most extreme, brutal example of suffering that you could possibly face anywhere in the world right now. That suffering nowhere nearly compares to the suffering of what we would have received, but Christ took that suffering himself in our place. It says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter emphasizes this Not just he, but he himself, he's emphasizing that the Son of God who knew no sin voluntarily bore our sin on his own accord and suffered as the only sufficient sacrifice of sin in our place. Just think about that. The one who owned the immeasurable riches and glory of heaven, the one whom angels worship, the one whom by all things were created, the one who never sinned and cannot sin, and the one who only deserves worship of every living thing and could never deserve suffering, he voluntarily took on human flesh to bear the suffering of the very ones who knew nothing but sin. Yet when we suffer, the first thing out of our mouths is, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Understand, he himself, he came to earth that he created. He came to the earth that he created to suffer at the hands of people he created and be nailed to a tree he created to bear the sins of the people he created because he desired to reconcile his creation. And Peter quotes Isaiah 53 right here. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You were straying, and this is the verb tense of a past continual thing. We were continually straying. We weren't just straying here and there. We were just living in an existence of straying. We were strayers. We had no hope that he would own us, no hope that he would protect us, no hope that he would care for us. But now we have been returned to him, the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Now that title for Jesus really should remind us of just who he is in our lives when we suffer for his sake. He's the shepherd and overseer of our souls. When we're suffering for his sake, when we're suffering because of proclaiming him or doing what he's called us to do, he's a feeder. He's a protector. He's a provider. He's a healer. He's a restorer. If you are his sheep, he will guard you. He'll guard you through any trial, through any suffering, through any time when you are treated unjustly, but you say, I am going to stand for righteousness. I am going to stand on my convictions. He will guard you. Do you trust him to do so? Will you follow the shepherd in his steps? In Peter's case, 
just shortly after writing this, he would follow in Christ's steps all the way to a cross of his own. Peter's going to follow in Jesus' steps all the way to martyrdom where he gave his life for Christ. So right now as we close, I want, let's all picture in our minds, you know, whatever that suffering is that we've been called to partake in at this moment in our lives, whatever that suffering may be, whatever trial you may be going through, just know that Jesus understands it intimately. He understands it better than we could ourselves. And not only because he's omniscient and he knows all things, but because he experienced it himself. He experienced it bodily. If you are suffering unfairly, if you are suffering in any way bodily or a way you're being mistreated, Jesus understands. Do you trust him? Will you follow in the shepherd's steps wherever you are and wherever he leads you? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Lord, I just pray that in all the capacities that you've given us, uh, the family circles that you've given us, the places of work, the spheres of influence that you've given us in our lives, that we would proclaim the excellencies of you who brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, I pray that we as a people would be people that would demonstrate Christ in the workplace, that we would demonstrate Christ through our humility and respect for those who we work for and work with, but Lord, also demonstrate Christ in our goodness, in our righteousness. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering right now and for all of us, who will be going into trials because we know that you've guaranteed them for us in this life, that we would stand firm in the hope that you've given us, recognizing that the shepherd and overseer of our souls has set an example for us, that we would follow in your steps. We give you all the glory in the name of Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.